0: Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, you can follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Pod. And if you want to support the show, you can support it through Patreon with either a one-time or a recurring donation, which helps pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also get some Fisheries Pod schwag on the Teespring store. That's T-shirts, stickers, face masks, you name it. So check it out. My name is Anders Halverson, and my guest today is Jasmine Graham. Jasmine is a marine scientist and an environmental educator. She graduated from the College of Charleston in 2017 with a B.S. in marine biology and a B.A. in Spanish. She received her master's degree in biological science from Florida State University. Jasmine's research focuses on shark and ray ecology and evolution. She's also the project coordinator for the Marine Science Laboratory Alliance Center of Excellence, which is focused on researching and promoting the best practices to recruit, support, and retain minority students in marine science. She's also the founder and the president and CEO of Minorities in Shark Sciences. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I'd love to start out here by talking about your research and in particular, the paper that you recently published on small tooth sawfish. Can you tell me a little bit about those fish and why we, why we should care about them and what uh, your research was about?
1: Sure. So the small tooth sawfish is a critically endangered species. So as bad off as a species can be before being listed as extinct. And um, it's a ray. A lot of people confuse them for sharks, but they are in fact rays. One way you can tell the difference between a shark and a ray is their gill slits. Uh, Their gill slits are on the side for sharks and they're underneath on the bottom for rays. So the small-tooth sawfish is a species that we have here in the United States. We used to have two species in the United States of sawfish, the large-tooth and the small-tooth. Unfortunately, the large-tooth has gone locally extinct, uh, so we only have one species left. So a lot of my work is focused on Making sure that we keep that one softer species we have left around. They're really important. Uh, They serve as apex predators when they're adults in the coastal ecosystems. They're really heavily reliant on mangrove shorelines. Uh, So as we are losing more and more of our mangrove shorelines, that's becoming a bit of a challenge for them. Another one of their major threats is being caught accidentally in commercial fisheries, particularly in shrimp trawls. So that's what my, my research is focused on, is understanding where these interactions are occurring between the commercial shrimp trawlers and the sawfish and how we can lessen those and uh, learning where they're spending a lot of time so that we can put some protections in place to protect those habitats to make sure that they have really suitable environments and their threats are minimized so that we can have them around for a long, long time.
0: Okay, so going back just for a second, you said the large-tooth sawfish has gone extinct, at least in the United States. Where where did it exist, and where does it exist now?
1: So the large-tooth sawfish in the United States used to exist um, along the Gulf of Mexico, uh, from Texas to about Florida-ish. Um, and now they're no longer—we haven't seen one in over 20 years— uh, but the large tooth sawfish is still in parts of South America, uh, as well as Australia and, you know, over there on the, uh, other side of the world. Uh, but here they are, uh, locally extinct. But the small tooth sawfish we still have in the United States, but their range has shrunk dramatically. So the small tooth sawfish used to be found, uh, from, Texas, all the way around the coast of Florida, up to North Carolina. And now you can only find them with regularity in South Florida. Hmm.
0: Okay. So what was your research trying to do and how did you go about it?
1: I use what's called acoustic telemetry and satellite telemetry in order to track the movements of these animals. So some of the animals were tagged with satellite archival tags um, so these are tags that are designed to pop off after a pre-programmed amount of days. So we call them PSATs for short, pop-off satellite archival tags. And uh, these are deployed on the dorsal fin of the sawfish. And it's constantly estimating its position. And then whenever it pops off, it delivers all of that data to the satellites, So we're able to get an estimation of all of the places where that animal was swimming around, which is great for sort of large scale understandings of how they're moving, but it is an estimate. So it's not as good at that fine scale resolution uh, because it has a pretty large margin of error associated with it. Mm -hmm. So I coupled that with what's called acoustic telemetry, uh, which actually we implant those transmitters internally so we do a quick surgery on the underside of the animal making a small incision and uh we put the transmitter in and then suture them back up and the good thing about sharks and rays is they have incredibly fast healing abilities so hmm. that uh surgery will heal up in about a week to the point where you can barely even see the scar which is pretty awesome and how big,
0: how big are the tags the, the acoustic tags.
1: They're about the size of a marker.
0: Oh, they're pretty big.
1: And the reason why they're bigger is that they have batteries that last 10 years. So in order to have a battery that lasts that long, wow. <laughs> they had to make it a little bigger.
0: Wow. Yeah, I guess. Okay. Um, what about the receivers? Where Where do you place those?
1: So we work with a a series of scientists that all work together to share data, which is really awesome that enabled this project to be the most large scale sawfish movement project that has been undertaken. Um, and mm-hmm. that is because we have these arrays. So we have our receivers, uh, you know, around sort of Apalachicola Bay in in Florida, which is sort of the panhandle of Florida. We also have receivers down in Everglades National Park and the Keys, but we also are able to tap into all these other receivers that people have. And so we work with the FACT, ACT, and Tag arrays, which are these really cool networks where people have these receivers and we all join this network. And not only are we having our data from our receivers, but we're also able to download data from other people's receivers. So the receivers are out there. And if an animal that's not yours swims by it, the receiver doesn't know that's not your animal and it's going to detect them anyways. So if they're going to be detecting other people's animals, you may as well share that data. And that is sort of why these networks were created. So we actually were able to track our sawfish on nearly 400 different receivers wow. around the coast of Florida, thanks to all of these um, acoustic tracking networks.
0: That's fascinating. So these this network of, of receivers goes on the coastline, I suppose, all over not just North America, but the world probably.
1: Yeah. So they're tapped into the Ocean Tracking Network, which is this really large entity that's trying to get, you know, everyone all around the world to start sharing this data because there's, you know, so many receivers that so many scientists are using that are out there. And especially when you're dealing with highly migratory species, it's helpful to know if your animal is, is going to the Bahamas or if it's mm-hmm. going to Cuba, or if it's going to South America, or even, you know, transatlantic. So that's all super useful information. And science is in my opinion, is the best whenever it's collaborative. So I'm really excited to see all of these networks
0: forming. Yeah, that's really neat. Okay, so what did you find? Some really
1: interesting things and some good news in terms of sawfish recovery. So we are seeing the beginnings of what could be a range expansion. So we're seeing them more... Um, in northern Florida, spending a lot of time. We actually had detections as far as Brunswick, Georgia. And we are able to see that they're using the entire coast of Florida on both sides now. And uh, we're also able to see some areas that we didn't know sawfish were hanging out around, particularly off the coast of Cape Canaveral. So Cape Canaveral's in the news a lot for NASA and launching rockets and things like that. Uh, but apparently, it is also a spot that sawfish like to hang out a lot. So every summer, we have a group of sawfish that goes and spends the summer up there right off of Cape Canaveral. And no one had any idea because we don't have people catching them or seeing them or reporting them. Um, So they might be hanging out in sort of deeper water. But it's really fascinating to know that there's this whole area that these sawfish are using that up until this research, we didn't know about.
0: Yeah, that's just crucial if you're dealing with a critically endangered species to find new habitat. Definitely. Is the range expansion correlated with an expansion in in the population size?
1: That's a really interesting question. And uh, it's difficult to answer because we don't actually have super good estimates of how many were left in the population before. So we know that the that it decreased dramatically there are some estimates that 90% of the population was lost between the industrial wow. revolution and when they were listed on the endangered species act but we really don't know for sure but evidence supports that we may have more movement and that could mean that there's more sawfish it could also just mean that we're better at tracking sawfish mm-hmm. so it's it's really hard to know that
0: well, there's also a sampling problem. How do you catch these fish, and and isn't doesn't that pose something of a sampling problem?
1: Yes, for sure. So we use drum lines, uh, bottom long lines, and occasionally hook and line whenever, whenever the moment presents itself uh, for the larger animals, and then the smaller animals. There's targeted scientific gill nets, but that is interesting because when we're dealing with this sort of needle in a haystack situation. We have some spots that we know sawfish hang out at, but there's probably other spots that sawfish are hanging out at that we aren't even aware, Mm -hmm. as evidenced by this Cape Canaveral discovery. So there might be more than we think there are, but we just don't know where to find them. So we have this movement data. And so, for instance, I'm up in Tampa Bay and I know that sawfish come here every year. We know from the observations of our community scientists that report when they see sawfish that we're seeing sawfish of all size classes up here in Tampa Bay, which Mm -hmm. means that it's likely that there are at least some females that are dropping their pups in Tampa Bay, but we have no idea where.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So what what are you doing now then? What's the next step? Are you, are you trying to expand your sampling locations or what's happening now in the research?
1: So right now I'm trying to find the biggest biggest thing that I'm looking for is where these pups in Tampa Bay are being dropped. Okay. So last year we had five newborn sawfish, brand new, days old that were spotted off of a a couple of beaches in Tampa Bay. And so that really is the first time that we've seen brand new pups. So we're doing a lot of targeted observations around there with drones and walking beaches. And I'm hoping to put some kayaks in the water and start sort of kayaking around the mangrove shorelines there to find potentially where these pups are are being dropped. And then I'm also looking at trying to do some more Surveys for sawfish in different locations. Uh, based on what we're seeing with the movement data, we have this movement corridor that kind of goes from the Keys slash the Everglades up to Cape Canaveral. So I'm hoping to sort of get some of those spots um, off West Palm Beach and Biscayne Bay, off of Miami and Indian River Lagoon, and try and see if I can make the connections of where exactly these sawfish are stopping and pausing to you know eat, rest, things like that.
0: So it sounds like you're focused on habitat as the primary threat and not necessarily bycatch. Is that correct?
1: Well, I also do some bycatch work. Uh, so I recently published a paper with some of my collaborators looking at using geographic information systems to estimate the probability of interaction in different places along the coast of Florida. And we got some really interesting results from that that showed us that there is potential for a really effective time area closure. So there are specific times of year and specific areas where the risk is really high, and then the rest of the time it's not quite as high. So that makes this a really good candidate for a time area closure where you close down part of the coastline to fishing for a couple of months out of the year which is great news for sawfish because it's a big a good potential of recovery to mitigate this this risk of bycatch and it's also relatively good news for fishers because that means that we could potentially do something where we are doing a partial closure versus saying, oh, this area that the sawfish are traveling through, you can't fish in at all. Mm -hmm. We can narrow it down and say, these couple of months, you can't fish, but everywhere Mm -hmm. else, every time else is fine. So that means that there's potential to work with commercial fishers to make sure that we're not negatively impacting them financially and economically, but also maximizing the impact of uh, minimizing these these threats for sawfish. So we're now in communication with NOAA um, through the sawfish recovery team to try and start working out how we can adjust some of these regulations to improve the conditions uh, in terms of the risk for sawfish moving through these areas.
0: And are they primarily um, shrimp trawlers that we're talking about?
1: Yes. So shrimp trawling is the, is the big one, um, mostly because of the nature of the gear. The sawfish are really prone to getting entangled because they have these long wow. noses, snouts, um, that look like saws, hence the name sawfish. So they have a bunch of teeth and those teeth are really easy to get all wrapped up in nets. And so that causes a lot of stress because they're being dragged. A lot of times their rostrum actually breaks off from the pressure of being, you know, entangled in that net. And so that's why we're mostly focused on that because the mortality rate for sawfish is nearly 100% in a shrimp trawl. And we also have a lot of shrimp trawling happening right in the middle of their main movement corridor. When they start making their annual migration, those that migrate, um, especially those that migrate up the Gulf Coast of Florida, swim right through a major shrimping area.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So that brings up another, a little bit of a segue to another topic. You mentioned their rostrum and their teeth, and I think we've spent a lot of time talking about them um, as an endangered species and what their movement is, but we haven't talked about just how cool sawfish are. So can you describe to me what they're using that rostrum for and why sawfish are so cool?
1: Sawfish are incredibly odd looking. (laughs) So either one of those animals that you look at and you go millions of years of evolution and you came up with that, that's odd. (laughs) Um, So they have this long snout that I mentioned. They have these teeth all along the side, which are not actually technically teeth. Uh, They're modified scales. And they have these um, ampullae of Lorenzini that are all along the bottom of their saw. That helps them detect uh weak electrical charges so that they can sense the heartbeats and um all of the signals that fish's bodies send to make their muscles move and uh so it's it's basically a fish detector uh yeah, you amazing think
0: it. sense to have right
1: <laughs> yeah. You can think of it as you know, walking along the beach with a metal detector, It's <laughs> just mm-hmm. kind of sensing it. And then once they sense some fish, they'll start swinging their saw and they can swing it incredibly fast. They're incredibly strong animals. And they basically just stun and injure their prey by whacking it with a saw. And then they swim back through and they actually swallow their prey whole. So their teeth are um, crunching teeth like a lot of other rays Uh, So they're flat and grinding. So they don't actually grab food. They just swallow it whole. And then if they eat crustaceans or anything, they use their teeth just to crack the shell. So that's a very interesting hunting strategy that they have.
0: Yeah, very cool. So how big do these guys get?
1: Small tooth sawfish can get to be 15 feet long or five meters. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That's amazing. Have you ever seen? What's the biggest one you've ever seen?
1: Uh the biggest one I've ever seen was four hundred and twenty centimeters. Uh so I haven't quite seen them at their max. That's still we pretty, did, pretty impressive. Yeah, we did have a um a couple of sawfish wash up dead, unfortunately, in the keys, one of which was its max size. It was it uh measured in just under five meters. I think it was like four hundred and ninety-eight centimeters. Wow. <laughs>
0: So hopefully that went to a, a museum somewhere.
1: Yeah. So the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission got the animal. They were able to do a, a necropsy on both of them. Uh, so that's awesome. And then uh, parts of it are have been preserved, have gone to museums, are being used as education materials, uh, which is really, really cool.
0: That is cool. Okay, so uh, before we run out of time, I think that's a great segue into The whole other hat that you wear, which is as a um, you put a lot of effort into science communication and education, and uh, specifically, you are the one of four founders and the president and CEO of Minorities in Shark Sciences. Can you tell us about that organization?
1: Yes, so we were founded in June of 2020, right in the midst of the global pandemic and racial unrest in the United States, which is an interesting time to found found an organization. Um, But I met the other three co-founders on Twitter, which this is a story of Twitter being used for good, (laughs) social media is Social media is not always the good guy, but in this case it was. And um, we met each other. We started talking about our experiences as Black women in shark science. And we started to figure out that we had similar stories and we were dealing with similar obstacles and struggles and things like that. And so we kind of jokingly at first said we should make a club. And then that turned into a very serious thing where we actually started an organization, became a nonprofit. And uh, two years later, we now have nearly 500 members (laughs) representing over 38 different countries. Uh, We've grown incredibly fast uh, in a short period of time. We've established some great programs where we support gender minorities of color to do internships and to um, have experiences in the field and in lab settings, and um, have professional development and networking opportunities, and paying for people to be able to go to conferences. And we've also started doing things with kids at the K through 12 level to introduce them to the amazingness that is marine science. So we have summer camps, we have in-person programs. We have content available online that anyone with an internet connection can access. Um, So I'm really proud of what we've done. And I think we're having a, a positive impact on the field as a whole. And I can't wait to see what we do in the future.
0: Okay. So what you just described, all of these things that you are doing just blew me away that you've managed to grow an organization in two years that could do that much and that many different things. So can we talk about some of the more of the specifics? So do you, you are affiliated with various labs and you help mentor uh, minorities who want to be involved in shark sciences. That's that's a big part of it?
1: Yeah. So we have um, a lot of partners all around the world that we work with. Uh, something that's interesting about this is that we're grassroots. So we were started by four early career scientists who just had a dream and a vision and a lot of people believed in that dream and vision and have have helped um, grow this network of labs and professionals that we can then pair our members with. So that's really been awesome. Um, Some of our partners include Woods Hole, um, University of California, Merced, University of Miami, Field School, Um, Atlantic White Shark Conservancy, Love the Oceans, Bimini Biological Field Station, Oceans Research, and the list goes on and on. I'm probably going to forget somebody, Rookery Bay. Um, So we have all of these organizations that have offered to host some of our members, to serve as mentors, uh, both formally and informally, And that's been amazing because we don't have a brick and mortar, we don't have a physical location, we don't have a lab or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So we rely very heavily on other people partnering with Miss to bring these programs to their institutions.
0: Yeah, that's really great. And so I suppose if there's anyone out there listening who has another organization who is interested in working with you, they should contact you.
1: Yes, definitely. We're always looking for more partners.
0: Okay. And then, so you're, you don't have any geographical base anywhere in the world where there's sharks. Yep. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> Which is most of the, most of the planet, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. And do you also have, do you have, uh, have you put on any meetings or programs where people are able to get together in one geographical place?
1: Yes. Yeah, so we have this year started doing regional meetings uh we're starting with the united states we're hoping next year to do some international ones and um these are opportunities for people in the general vicinity of that area to come together and meet each other share our research uh we usually do some sort of workshop so people can learn a skill as well whether that be Statistical programming in R or geographic Mm -hmm. information systems or anything like that. And so we've had them sort of in the four corners of the United States so far. And uh, we actually have one coming up this weekend in South Carolina. And then a couple weeks later, there's one in Dallas. So we've been trying to get people opportunities to come together in person uh, we also do travel awards to attend conferences. So we took uh, about 12 members to the joint meeting of ichthyologists and herpetologists this um, past summer. And uh, we're also taking another six to Sharks International in October.
0: Wow, that's great. Where do you get the funding for this?
1: Uh, we have a lot of philanthropy uh, so our first year and a half, we offered an, operated entirely off of individual donations. And um, our average donation size was $20. Uh, so that mm-hmm. goes to show you, you don't need to give a lot. Uh, it, a little bit goes a long way. And so get, having a 1,000 people give $20 is just as valuable as having one person give $20,000. So mm-hmm. uh, that is how we started out initially as having a fiscal sponsor. We didn't have our 501c3 uh, yet at that time when we first launched. And then we started soliciting donations just on social media. And in our first two weeks of launching, we raised $30,000, which was pretty wild. And uh, it just kept going from there. And, And now that we're a bit more established, we're able to apply for grants and we have some sponsors and things like that. But I really want to just take a moment to thank everyone in that first year and a half that believed in us just because, um, you know, there was no established programs, there was no guaranteed return on investment, and people just believed Uh, in the mission and donated. And because of that, we were able to get programs. And now we're able to show that we're doing really great stuff. And now we're able to get some of those grants and sponsorships from larger organizations. Now that we can show, you know, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak.
0: Yeah, that is really remarkable. So can you just a little bit of a transition. You talked about sort of the obstacles that if you're a minority, you, you face uh, if you wanted to get into shark sciences or sciences in general. Can you talk about the particulars of anything that you faced or that other people face? And, and you know, I guess in a, almost in a more practical sense of how we can overcome these obstacles.
1: Yeah, some of the some of the big ones have to do with how academia is set up. It's it's sort of this black box. No one inherently knows how it works, and if you don't have anyone to explain it to you, you're just going to wander around lost. So I remember when I was applying for graduate school, at first I didn't understand that you needed to email Potential advisors and talk to them. You know, I thought, oh, it's just like when you're applying for undergrad, you just find a school that you like, you submit an application. And so I submitted an application to North Carolina State and immediately got rejected. I was like, I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And then someone explained to me, you know, oh, who did you reach out to? Did they say that they were willing to take you in the lab? And I said, no, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. Mm -hmm. So then we had to go back to the drawing board of, okay, you have to email people and um, all of this stuff that I didn't know. I don't have anyone that Works in science. Uh, My mother is a nurse and my dad is a private investigator, and my family has a long history of being morticians. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) we don't know anything about science and how that works. So I needed someone to tell me that. And that is a big challenge because then that creates the situation where there are gatekeepers, where if there is no one to tell you how to do something, um, how to get to grad school, how to be in academia, then you just don't have access. The door is just Mm -hmm. closed to you. You don't have that key to open it. And this disproportionately affects people of color and gender minorities, and especially if you are both a gender minority and a person of color, Mm -hmm. because you don't have people looking out for you. Mm -hmm. People tend to want to help people that quote, remind them of themselves at a young age. And if everyone in your department is a white man, the chances of me as a black woman reminding them of themselves at a young age is slim. So the chances of someone taking me under their wing and showing me the ropes, um, it's it's a, a problem that we have. And a lot of people don't know how to mentor because we have this situation where people get these positions and they're expected to mentor students and no one ever tells you how to mentor students and they're like just figure it out and if you're being told just figure it out your natural instinct is to mentor people that think similar to you that have that come from a similar background to you because you know how you learned um and so if you don't have that training then you're going to default to what's easy and so that's why I'm a big proponent of training mentors. And that's why we offer offer mentor training to all of our partners, because once you tell someone and give someone the tools to be able to mentor someone that is perhaps dramatically different from them, then they feel more comfortable doing it and they're more likely to do it. Um, whereas if they don't have those tools, they're going to stay in their comfort zone. Um, And you have some people that are willing to, you know, step outside and there's always exceptions to the rules. But if you have a situation where you have the majority of your staff feeling not confident enough to mentor someone that's coming from a different place than they they came from, you're going to have a lot of students falling through the cracks.
0: Yeah, that's so true, I think, because there's so much of science and getting into science and graduate school that is unwritten, right? About how the whole social networks work and everything everything else that you can't find without really talking to people in person. So and and I also agree with you that uh being a mentor is a skill that is right. It's it's not something they teach you in graduate school. So that's really neat. So not only are you acting as mentors, but you're trying to um help create a whole network of mentors and train people how to do that. That's that's amazing. That's great. Can we talk about for obviously, it's really critical for people of color to have mentors because they wanted to get into science. So for them, it's a great thing what you've done. But can we also talk about how important it is to have for science itself to have a diversity of perspectives and backgrounds?
1: Yes, definitely. So I think that an institution only benefits from having a diverse group of people. You have diverse perspectives. You have people looking at things from different lenses, different angles. And that's when innovation happens. This is Mm -hmm. one of the things that we say in MIST, that diversity in scientists creates diversity in thought, which leads to innovation. If everyone has the same idea and that idea doesn't work where are you? You're just going back to the drawing board over and over again. Mm -hmm. But if you have someone that has this different perspective that says, why don't we try this? Why don't we do this? Have you thought about that? Then you have people able to start regenerating or generating these new ideas and build off of each other. Because maybe... All it takes is someone to say something that triggers someone else to think about something. And then you bounce ideas off of each other and then you're able to come up with solutions that weren't originally even fathomable. And that's something that's really important, especially when we're talking about conservation, because facing the world right now and especially in the marine environment. And we have these people that are trying to tackle these issues, but they don't have all of the pieces of the puzzle. So one thing that I'm really passionate about is inclusive marine conservation. So I come mm-hmm. from a family of fishers. And whenever I got to college and I started getting into my marine science degree, all of the conversations were very anti-fisher and I, was like, well, why? Like, yeah. We're not villains. Um, and so I started to kind of think about this a lot, about how much information that the fishing community has mm-hmm. that isn't getting into academia, because no one bothers to ask them. And there's a lot of situations that we've seen where the fishing community knew something was wrong before scientists knew it was wrong. Mm-hmm. And if someone would have asked them, they would have been able to tell them, yeah, I haven't seen any bass in five years. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. that's a little concerning. And um, you don't have this this feedback happening between the people that are on the water every day experiencing these things because no one bothers to go and talk to them. And I like to use my grandmother as an example. You know, she fished in the same spot pretty much every day (laughs) for... I don't know, 40 years. And in scientific terms, that's a Mm long-term data set. And uh, did anyone ever ask her what she knew? No. Um, And it's this idea that science is over here and everything else is over here. And that in order to contribute to science, you've got to have these degrees. And there's a specific way that we do things. And we don't acknowledge as much as we should this traditional way of thinking And this sort of naturalist perspective of people that are making observations and you don't need to be able to read. You don't need to be able to do any of these things to be able to make an observation about the world and tell somebody about it. Um, And so that's something that I'm really passionate about is bringing in these perspectives, not only getting diversity in academia, in the science world, but also bringing in people from outside of academia and outside of the science world, Mm -hmm. because those are perspectives that we need. Because right now we're going around making conservation decisions that are ineffective because we don't bother to ask the people who are directly impacted by these things what is going to be helpful um, and what's going to be hurtful. And in some cases, we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot because we've angered them because okay. we didn't talk to them.
0: Exactly. And not only, you know, I think a lot of citizen science and it's great is having the scientists formulate the question and then having the citizens provide the data. But as you're pointing out, I bet your grandmother has questions that nobody has ever thought of. So when you have these diverse people in science, it's not just that they're coming up with new solutions. It's com- it's that they're coming up with whole new ways of thinking about The world and questions that maybe nobody has even thought to ask yet, which is how all the great revolutions in science have happened. And so I just just want to mention that I just saw an article, and I'm embarrassed to say I only read the headline, but it was in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, in which some people got together and studied the authorship of papers. And again, I can't tell you too much about it, but basically they found that papers that were authored by uh, mixed Gender had 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 authors of multiple genders were more impactful and more innovative than papers that were by a single gender. So there's actually statistical demonstration of the, of how important diversity is to good science.
1: Yeah, definitely, and I'm sure that if you looked at cultural differences as well if you mm-hmm. had mixed cultures on a paper those are super impactful I know some of the best papers that I've read have had authors from indigenous communities on them um, or from fishing communities and that is that's how you get the whole picture because it's one thing to say well I think based on my numbers this is how this works it's a whole other thing to have someone tell you that's not going to work and I'm going to tell you why and here's the cultural reason why that's not going to work
0: right. Okay. So I don't want to run out of, we've already sort of exceeded our time limit. Thank you very much, Jasmine. Let me, we have these traditional, there's traditionally five questions. I'm going to, I'm going to go through them with you that we ask everybody who comes on the show. First, it's really easy. What is your favorite fish?
1: My favorite fish is the bonnet head shark.
0: Oh, why?
1: Because it was the first shark that I ever caught and i also think that they're very cute i have a soft spot for animals with weird heads and uh they were the first known omnivorous shark so i think that's cool
0: okay awesome all right what is your favorite memory from your career so far
1: my favorite memory was when i was in a school giving a presentation and a little girl came up to me after my presentation and she was maybe in the first or second grade and she just said, your hair looks like my Mm -hmm. hair. And that was a really beautiful moment because uh, I think up until that point, she had probably never seen a scientist that looked like her. And she had never fathomed that doing ocean things with hair that is like mine was a possibility.
0: God, so important. So impactful. That's great. Okay. um, What is your dream job or location?
1: My dream job is what I'm doing now. I don't think a lot of people can say that, but I think I'm living the dream. I I really enjoy sort of living and working at the intersection of marine conservation, social justice, and science education. And I feel like I'm in the middle of that Venn diagram right now, which is where I want to be.
0: That is awesome. Okay. Um, Here's one. If money was not an issue, what is one project that you would like to work on?
1: ooh, that's a good question. If money was not an issue, I think I would try to figure out where whale sharks give birth <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow i didn't is that I didn't know that was a big mystery. Is that a big mystery?
1: Oh, yes, it is a huge mystery, and it doesn't make sense because they're the size of a bus and yeah. then they just disappear and they return, and there are like babies <laughs> that are. Pretty large in comparison to the smallest baby that has been found. So they are hanging out somewhere, doing something.
0: There's so (laughs) many mysteries still out there. That's cool. Okay. Finally, if there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be?
1: It would be that we all have to share the same planet. So we should all have a say in how we manage it.
0: That is excellent. It's almost like you practice that. That's great. (laughs) Okay. All right, Jasmine, thank you for coming on the show. Um, If people want to get in touch with you or find out more about minorities and shark sciences or any of your other research, how should they do that?
1: Well, my personal website is learningwithjasmine.org. That's Jasmine without an E on the end. Um, and then Miss's website is MissElasmo.org. And you can also find Miss on social media at Miss underscore Elasmo. And my social media handle or my Twitter handle is at Elasmo underscore Gal.
0: Okay, that sounds good. So I will put all of those in the show notes so people can find you through all of those. And there's a contact form or something on on those websites? Yes. Okay. So they'll be able to get in touch with you. Thanks again for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Okay. And I hope that you have enjoyed this episode. Remember that you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or from the fisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a contribution through patreon or by buying something through teespring my name is anders halverson our guest today has been jasmine graham thank you for listening and remember we all live on the same planet so we should all have a say on how it's managed